At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. If you could share a meal with any three people in history, who would you want to have dinner with? Maybe somebody's asked you that question, maybe not. That's kind of one of those like classic icebreaker questions, you know, you're like at a group thing at work or school or whatever and somebody asks you. I love those sorts of questions. I have friends actually who have a box full of little cards that have questions like that on them and I love to like pull the box out when we're hanging out over there and just ask them whatever random questions I can ask. I just love to hear people's response and consider and think. I don't know, there's something about icebreaker questions that I like. So, but if you could have dinner with any three people in history, who, who would you put on that list, right? I, I could tell you maybe some people who might be on my list. I'd, I'd love to have dinner with George Washington. I've always been fascinated by the role that he played and some of the choices that he'd make. I'd love to just, just ask him some really poignant questions. I'd probably pick Martin Luther. Maybe that's because I love church history, and he was just a bombastic personality, and the whole role he played in the Reformation fascinates me. Uh, I'd love to pick the brain of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian thinkers of the 20th century. Who would be on your list, right? You, you all have a list. We went around this room. I'm sure you would have people that you would think like, oh, I'd love to just talk with them and interact with them and speak with them. Do you think Jesus might be on your list? Maybe, maybe not, maybe some of you. What do you, what do you think it would be like to have dinner with Jesus? What, what do you think he'd talk about? What do you think that interaction would be like? Sitting down and eating a meal together and having him engage with you. I don't think we'd have to think or wonder too much about what that might look like because Jesus' earliest followers actually recorded encounters with him after his resurrection around meals. And in many ways, they provide for us a fascinating view of what a dinner with Jesus might just have looked like and what that conversation might have contained. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus engaged his followers around a meal. And I think in many ways, this passage kind of speaks to maybe the way he'd engage us if we were at that table. So we're going to together kind of pull up our proverbial chair, sit down with some of Jesus' earliest disciples, and see what he might say to us over a dinner together. And as we do that, I think we're going to discover a few key things. So I want to just kind of jump into the text, kind of unpack as we go a little bit, verse by verse, and I think draw out some things I want us to see this morning. So back in Luke 24, verse 36, begins this way. As they were talking about these things. Now, who's they? That's Jesus' disciples. They're gathered in a room in Jerusalem, and they're having a conversation. And it's a pretty robust conversation, I imagine, because two of those disciples had just shown up in that room and told them that they had seen Jesus alive. Now, that would be a pretty amazing thing, because just three days earlier, before this moment, they had watched Jesus die, hung on a Roman cross, and ultimately buried in a tomb. And then, but two of his disciples were on a journey from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus, you can read about it right before our passage, and encountered Jesus alive, who walked with them, talked with them, actually sat down with them to eat. And so they saw Jesus, and they actually run all the way back to Jerusalem and tell his disciples, hey, Jesus isn't dead. Like, he's actually alive. He's risen. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody ran into this room right now and told us that someone that we all knew was dead and had watched dead was suddenly alive, I imagine that might lead to a pretty robust conversation, don't you think? And that's kind of where they begin, right? They're talking about these things. But something even more amazing happens then. The text says, Jesus himself stood among them. So while they're having this conversation, Jesus shows up in the room and says to them, peace to you. Now, this is always my favorite part of the story, right? Because I imagine if someone I knew who had died showed up in the room all of a sudden, I would need somebody to speak peace to me as well, right? And so he says, peace to you. But they're still freaking out. I mean, look at verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So Jesus is there and these guys are, I mean, they're freaking out, right? Those words that we see are really carry the idea of being terrified or afraid. Again, that's a natural reaction. If you watch someone die and they were there, I think I'd be scared too. And they're trying to wrap their minds around this. Remember, they didn't believe that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. The original woman that encountered Jesus at the tomb, Luke says, ran and told the disciples. And in Luke 24, 11, it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So they didn't believe Jesus was risen, but suddenly he's there and they're trying to figure it out. And their first reaction is natural. They think he's a ghost or a manifestation or a hallucination. He's something, but this isn't actually like Jesus, like physical flesh and blood Jesus, right? Well, I love Jesus's response to them. Look what he says in verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, Jesus responds this by acknowledging the wrestling and struggle that they are engaging. I don't think Jesus says these words as judgment. I don't think he comes in and he's like, what's wrong with you guys? Get your act together. But he's saying, why, why are you troubled? He goes right at the, the issue. They're, they're struggling with the tension of his resurrection. And then he invites them to do two things in response to that question. Look at 39. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus invites them to do two things. The first thing he invites them to do is to see, to look at him, right? I mean, these guys knew Jesus. They had been with him for three years at this point. They had traveled together, done ministry together, eaten together, stayed together, lived together, Right? So, I mean, if there's anybody that knows what Jesus is like, they know what Jesus is like. And not only that, they had watched Jesus die, hung on a cross just a few days before this. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, see, guys, it's me. Hello. Remember that same guy that you've been with for the last three years? Like, I'm here. Remember you saw me hung on the cross? Like, look at my hands and my feet. It's actually me. That same experience, that's who I am. But then he invites them to even go deeper into the reality. He says, touch me. Touch me and see. Not just look, but here we see Jesus inviting them to recognize that his resurrection is physical and real, that he's actually alive. And so he shows them his hands. He says, remember you saw those Roman guards drive those nails through my hands? Well, here's the scars to show. You saw them drive them through my feet? Look, it's me. Touch me. You can see it. But they still are struggling with this one. And this is one of my favorite verses in this text. Look at verse 41. It says, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them. I mean, Jesus is literally like, look at me, touch me, here I am. And these guys are like, uh, I don't know about this. 
Now, I imagine if I saw someone with scars through their hands, I'd be probably a little nervous to touch those too, right? We can admit that. But, but they're, they're struggling in this moment with like, what is true? Is this really Jesus? And there's a little bit of joy that emerges. There's marveling and wondering. But you feel kind of the tension of the disciples in this text. And I love that because in so many ways, I think they're an example of so many of us in our own journeys when the reality of Jesus. I mean, who hasn't had doubts about the resurrection of Jesus? Who hasn't wondered and questioned and thought like, I don't, is this all true? Like, is this, is this for real what all these Christians believe? Like, who hasn't had that? I mean, even Jesus' first disciples, when he was in the room, were struggling. Many of us in our journey to faith, we don't experience just like a snap of the fingers one day. Many of us wrestle and struggle and question and wonder and ask, and there's a journey involved in the process of faith. And what I love about the way Luke recounts this story is that Jesus' first disciples had that same struggle too. But Jesus' response to that is to continue to invite them deeper into the reality of who he is and what he's done. Look what he says. So he's already said, look, see, but then he goes even further, and he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And apparently they did. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So I think the first thing we see is that, one, they're in the middle of dinner. Like Jesus interrupts and then basically says, hey, do you have anything to eat? Now remember, this is the first century. They don't have a refrigerator. It wasn't like Jesus was like, oh, or they were like, hey, Jesus, let me get the Tupperware out of the fridge. I'll throw it in the microwave real quick and we'll heat it up. They're clearly in the middle of a meal. They have fish. Jesus asked for it and so they give it to him. And what does he do? He eats the fish. And it's here that Jesus draws them even further into the reality of the physical nature of his resurrection. Ghosts don't eat fish. Hallucinations don't sit down and have dinner with you. That's not how it works. And yet Jesus sits down in the middle of their meal, eats the fish, and in doing so says, look, I'm truly raised. Jesus in this moment is inviting the disciples to see the evidence that he has been risen from the dead. And it's this fact that I think is the first thing Jesus would draw our attention to if he sat down at a meal with us. And it's simply this, that Jesus's resurrection is true. The whole first part of the meal, Jesus and the author Luke is making the clear claim that is the core of the Christian faith. That Jesus literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. That that same body that was hung on a cross, that died and was buried in a tomb, was resurrected to new life. Physically, so much so that you could touch it, he would eat food, that it was physical. Jesus says, look, I'm truly raised. And not only is Jesus arguing for that, Luke, the author of this gospel, is arguing for that as well. The whole narrative is set up in a way for you to consider the truth that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. This was Luke's whole goal in writing this book in the first place. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of Luke, he says in the first few verses that it was his work to gather an orderly account of all that Jesus said and did to give to a man named Theophilus. And then he says, so that you could have certainty, certainty about the things that you have heard. So Luke structured his gospel in a way so that you could know the truth of who Jesus is and what he did, including his life, his ministry, his death, and now here, his resurrection. And the whole way Luke writes this last chapter is an argument to say, this actually happened. 
These events are real. The people who experience this is real. Where they're at is real. I mean, Luke likely wrote this gospel, probably most scholars dated around the early 60s AD. Some argue for a later date, maybe up to the 80s AD. So, but either way you put it, Luke wrote what he accounts here somewhere between 30 years to 50 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. And the way he structures it to those that he writes to is to say, hey, listen, the people that I'm talking about, like they're still alive. The events and where they took place, you can still go see them. The whole account is set up to invite you to see that what he's saying is true. He's not writing and gathering stories from centuries before. He's gathering and recounting the truth that was proclaimed just 30 years ago. I mean, when people gather known sources of what has happened in recent history, we trust that there's a certain accuracy or a certain argument that those things are true, right? Think of it like this. So my wife and I are getting uh, ready to head to England. We got invited on a trip to go with her parents to visit London for a week. And while we're there, we're going to have the opportunity to go to Oxford. And I'm super excited about it because Oxford is uh, the home of C.S. Lewis, right, the 20th century apologist and thinker, and I love C.S. Lewis. And so I've been excited for that, and I've been kind of researching, getting ready for that trip, and I've been kind of not marking where Lewis lived and where he taught and the pub that he would go to to interact with J.R.R. Tolkien and others, the inklings they were called, and discuss myth and writing and literature and all this stuff and the paths that he walked and, and, and all these sorts of things, right? Because my assumption is when I go to Oxford, I'll get to see those things, I mean, Lewis only died 50, he died in 1963, I think. It was 50 years. There's still people alive here who interacted with him when he was alive. And the works that I gather assume there's truth here. And I'm going to see it. And that's what Luke's doing. Luke's gathering the evidence and he's saying, hey, you can go see this for yourself. So his whole argument is, not only is Jesus saying, look at the evidence, I'm actually alive, physically risen. Luke is arguing for it. Now, you might come along and say, yeah, that's all well and good, but that was like 2,000 years ago. How do I know that Jesus actually is risen from the dead? How do I know that the resurrection is true? And I imagine that if Jesus sat down at a meal with us, I mean, obviously, but the fact that he was with us, that would be evidence enough of itself. But maybe if you and I sat down at a meal together, what I would encourage you to consider about the truth of Jesus' resurrection is the historical evidence for his resurrection. To consider that there is good historical evidence that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the grave. Christianity is a faith, but it is not blind faith. It is a reasonable and reasoned faith. And there is evidence that Jesus historically rose from the dead. One of the methods that we use in determining the history of an event is to look at the facts around that event and then seek to say, what is the best explanation for all of those facts? And so this morning, I want to, as we consider the reality that Jesus' resurrection is true, I want to give you three facts that I think we have to wrestle with, how do we explain them apart from the reality that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And William Lane Craig gives these in his book, Reasonable Faith, which I would encourage you to read if you're wrestling with the truth of Christianity. The three pieces of evidence to consider regarding the resurrection this morning. The first thing is, how do you explain that the tomb was empty? The historical evidence is the tomb was empty. Jesus' body was not there. The easiest way to squash a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead is just to show the body, right? 
I mean, if, if they come along and say, hey, Jesus is alive, and you're like, uh, no, no, like you see these wrappings and these bones, like he's not. But the reality is Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. In fact, it's never been verified, never been found. No historical accounts or the reality has anyone discovered Jesus' body and where it was in fact buried. The tomb was empty. Now, some come along and say, well, maybe it was stolen. Maybe somebody took it. But remember, the Romans, under the influence of the Jews, had sealed the tomb, were aware that Jesus' death might lead to an an insurrection, and were very cautious about the way they handled his body. The Jews and Romans had no motivation to have Jesus' body stolen. And if it had been by them, wouldn't they have just produced it once these Christians started claiming he was alive? So your other idea is that somehow a ragtag group of fishermen, tax collectors, and others overpowered the most mighty military force of its day, moved a giant stone, stole the body of Jesus, hid it somewhere, didn't tell anyone, and no one knew where it was at. Maybe. But how do you explain that the fact that the tomb is empty seems unlikely to me? The second thing that you have to consider is how do you explain the claims of the early disciples? Hundreds of people, Paul notes up to 500, claimed to see Jesus bodily risen from the dead after his death. And they made these claims within the lifetime of the other eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. The claim that Luke highlights here, that all of Jesus' early disciples made, was that they genuinely interacted and saw Jesus risen from the dead. How do you explain that? Were they hallucinating? I mean, mass hallucination seems slightly unlikely, and even then, their claim is that they physically interacted with him. That's what Luke highlights, that he actually ate food, that they actually touched them, that he was actually with them. You say, well, maybe they were lying. They just made it all up. Maybe. But you also have to remember that all of Jesus' earliest disciples gave their lives for the truth that they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were highly persecuted by the Jews and the Romans. All of Jesus' 12 disciples died heinous deaths, except for John, who was essentially boiled alive and left on an island by himself at one point. And yet, none of them in their lifetimes ever for one second recanted the truth that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. Not one of them got cold feet. Not one of them backed down. Not one of them showed up and said, "Uh, actually, guys, we made it all up. If you could just leave us alone now, that'd be great. No, they all held fast to that claim throughout their lives. I mean, if we make one lie in our world today, it's found out at some point. I mean, think of things you've seen, hidden, stuffed. What happens? At some point, the truth comes out. And yet, in the lifetimes of Jesus' earliest followers, the only claim that they ever had was that he was actually risen. The last thing that I'd ask you to explain is how do you explain the explosion of Christianity? How does a tiny sect of Jewish people who had literally no cultural influence who followed a guy named Jesus, suddenly, in a few hundred years, explode to be one of the leading religions in the world and overturn the Roman Empire. Despite the fact that for the first 300 years of Christianity, they held no cultural influence, they were actually rejected by the popular culture, and they were severely persecuted in almost every place that they were found. 
Further, how does a group of cowardice disciples who wouldn't even speak up at Jesus' trial and fled suddenly turn into the most bold proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus and were willing to travel to the ends of the earth to make sure people knew that Jesus was alive? What happened to this group to change them so radically and so committedly when they didn't even have their leader present anymore? I mean, something happened to change them. What was it? So that's three pieces of evidence. You could dig more. The question you have to say is, how do you explain that? How do you explain an empty tomb? How do you explain the claims of the disciples? How do you explain the explosion of Christianity that happened after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? As Christians, we say the best, the most logical, consistent explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That it is true. That's what Luke invites you to consider. And the central claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus' resurrection is true and real. And because of that, it has changed everything. It is core to what we believe. And it is the claim that we make on the world and all reality that Jesus is risen from the dead. I love N.T. Wright's quote in his book, Surprised by Hope. You take Christmas away from us, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and Luke, nothing else. You take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. You don't have Christianity. As Paul says, you're still in your sins. The resurrection and its truth is the core of what we believe and claim to be true. And if you're considering Christianity today, if you're wondering, if you're exploring, if somebody invited you here this morning, my encouragement is to you, start with the resurrection. It's the foundation of everything else we believe. Look at the evidence, read the gospels, consider, dig in. How do you explain the things that I said? And what we're here to do is to bear witness along with the rest of the church that says, we believe Jesus rose from the dead and that's the best explanation there is. But Jesus doesn't just stop there in this meal. Okay, he starts there, it's key, but then he continues into the second thing that he wants to show them. So look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. If Jesus sat down at a meal with us, the first thing I think he'd remind us is that the resurrection is true. But I think the second thing he would remind us is that the resurrection is taught. And it's the heart of God's word and the heart of what God does in working to bring salvation in the world. I mean, Jesus in this moment leads what I imagine has got to be one of the greatest Bible studies in history. right? Could I, if I could sit down at a meal with Jesus and have him walk me through the Bible, I'm in for that. Like, help me understand it. And that's what Jesus does with these guys. And what he does in doing it is he highlights the whole thing is about me. And my death and resurrection is central to the whole story. There's a key thing that Jesus does in this verse to highlight how everything is about him. So you have to remember, in Jesus' day, they only had what we call now the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. right? This is what they had. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. But the Jews believed that the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, that it contained God's revelation to his people and to the world. And the Hebrew Bible was made up of three distinct parts in Jesus' day. It was gathered as a collection of scroll, and it was made up of three distinct parts. 
the phrase that's often used to describe the Hebrew Bible is the word Tanakh. It's the Tanakh. And that is actually not a word. It's an amalgamation of three Hebrew letters. And it describes the three parts. The first part of the Hebrew Bible is the Torah, or the Law of Moses, the first five books. The second part of the Hebrew Bible is what's known as the Nevim, or the gathering of the prophets, the writings of the prophets, which spoke to the nation of Israel. The third part of the Hebrew Bible is known as the Ketuvim, which is the writings, which is the gathering of the Psalms. It begins with the Psalms. It also has the wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and those are things. Those are the three parts that would have made up the Bible that they would have had, or the Hebrew Bible that they would have had in their day. Now, notice what Jesus says to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in what? In the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, the Nevim, and the Psalms, which is the first and key book of the Ketuvim, must be fulfilled. So what is Jesus saying to them? He's saying, hey, the whole thing from beginning to end, every part, it's about me. And then he does something incredible. He opens their minds to understand how it all points to him. Because it's only God who truly reveals scripture to us, who shows us and opens our minds and our hearts by the spirit to see. And that's what Jesus does. And what does he open their minds to see about the whole story and how it points to him? Well, he sums it up in 46, that all of it is written, right? All of that. You could argue for the reality of Jesus from the Old Testament alone. You don't even need the New Testament. God, just in his grace, gave it to us to help some of us who are a little bit harder of understanding, like myself, right? But Jesus says that all of it is written, that what? That the Christ, that's not Jesus' last name, that's his title. It means anointed one. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew idea of Messiah, that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. What Jesus says is what you've experienced in my death and resurrection, that's the center and heart of the entire scriptures. It is the culmination of God's plan. I wonder if Jesus in this moment would sit down with these disciples and he would just begin at the beginning and say, hey guys, remember how God made the world good and harmonious and right and he created so everything would work together in harmony so that it would all flourish and we would flourish and have life? That that's how God made things? But those first humans turned from God's rule and reign. They rejected God and decided to try to run life their own way. And because of that, the world fell into sin and brokenness and disarray. And the harmony that God made fell. And all the world began to experience the decay of sin. But remember how God promised right there at the beginning that he was going to enact a plan where he would crush the head of the evil itself and that he would do something to bring redemption And that God, in the law of Moses, chose Abraham to form a nation, and he put him at the heart of the world to say, I'm going to bring you into a land, and I'm going to set you up as a light to the nations and a kingdom of priests so that the world can see what I was like. But that that nation turned from God, they didn't obey him, they didn't follow through, and so God sent prophet after prophet to give them writings and speak to them and call them back, but they continued to reject him. And I wonder if Jesus maybe would open up the Ketuvim and he would say, God gave his wisdom then so you can learn to live in God's world, God's ways. And he gave us the Psalm and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in these books so you could understand God's wisdom. And yet we continue to turn from it. 
But hey, remember in all of that how God made a promise that one day he was going to send someone in the line of David, a great king who would come and he would deal with the problem of sin by dying on behalf of the nation and in fact all people, that he would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would give up his life so that we could have our sins covered and then God would work through him to reestablish his rule and reign and bring about a whole new creation in Isaiah 65, that God was actually going to redeem all things and all people and invite them into a new world with him forever. And I wonder if Jesus would walk through all of those moments and then he would say, hey guys, you know what's at the heart of all of that? What I just did. My death and my resurrection is the way in which God is going to accomplish what he promised in his word from the very beginning. What Jesus points them to is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus, in fact, died for our sins and rose again on the third day, and that it's through that that God brings salvation to the world and to each person that would put their faith in Jesus. While the foundation of Christianity is the resurrection, the central truth of Christianity is that Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And that's what his resurrection proclaims, that salvation is now made available in his name. And Jesus says that that message is going to go to all nations so every person can have the opportunity to be forgiven of their sins, to turn from it and experience new life in him. The word and the scriptures point to the fullness of what Jesus' resurrection is about. It's the central part of it. And I imagine if Jesus sat with us at a meal, he'd walk us through the scriptures and he'd help us see that truth. And then finally, the last thing that he would remind us is, as we experience that truth, as we come to experience the reality of his resurrection, as we come to respond to the truth of the gospel in faith, that we now have a role to play to carry that message to the world. Look what he says in verse 48 in response. So this message is to go forth. And then he says in 48, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Not only is Jesus' resurrection true, not only is it taught in Scripture, it is a message that is meant to be told. And I imagine if Jesus sat with us at a meal, he would encourage us to say, as you come to trust in who I am and what I've done, you now have the role of being a witness to the world about the good news of what I've done in my death and resurrection. If you've experienced the gospel today, if you've put your faith in Jesus you now have become a witness, just like these first disciples, to tell the world the truth of what his resurrection means. You've experienced his power, and now your life is meant to bear witness to the power of the resurrection and the gospel. Maybe you think of it like this. I remember in the mid-2000s, there was a bubbling energy in the NBA about a certain kid from Akron. He was the one the prophets had long foretold was going to be the transformational player in the NBA. From the moment he was in high school, he was declared the chosen one, right? And he entered in the NBA and he started to take it by storm. And his talents were noticeable long before he took them to South Beach. And I have a soft spot for him because I'm from Akron, so you got you to give me some grace, right? But I remember... 
I remember when LeBron James was kind of burgeoning, playing for the Cavs, becoming the superstar that he was. Nike decided to run a campaign ad to highlight his incredible accomplishments. The name of the campaign was We Are All Witnesses. And the campaign was fairly simple. If you went or had the opportunity to, to see LeBron James play basketball, you would be amazed at the talent that he campaigned. You, couldn't, you would be in awe of his power and his ability to play the game. And you would be left in a way in which you had to say, I saw one of the greatest players of all time. And so Nike ran this campaign and they showed his highlights on TV and they always had this tagline, we are all witnesses. And then they released a series of t-shirts that were all black that just had the word witness across the chest with the Nike logo. And the, whole, and the message was clear. I've seen this in experience and now I bear witness to the greatness of LeBron James. And I don't know how that played in Detroit, but I was in Cleveland and Akron at the time and that was big. I saw a lot of those shirts right? And a lot of people I knew, we were witnesses to the greatness of LeBron James. And the idea was clear. If you experienced the power, you would bear witness to the power of who he was. And that was a basketball game. When you come to put your faith in Jesus, you experience the power of resurrection life. God brings his Holy Spirit to live inside you. And the scriptures tell us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead comes to be in you when you put your faith in him. You experience the power of the resurrection. God brings you out of death into new life. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. But what it also means is because you've experienced that power, you now put on the shirt and you begin to live your life as a witness to that power. Your life becomes the means by which God is going to proclaim to the world the truth of his resurrection and the fullness of his salvation that he brings in Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are now a witness to him. And the truth of the resurrection that we celebrate today, while it calls many to faith, it also calls of us that have put faith in Jesus to go out and proclaim it in our lives so everyone can hear about it. This is the nature of what we are called to proclaim that the core message for everyone who has put them their faith in Jesus above all else is the truth that he died for our sins and rose again. Hugh Thomas Kerr says this, we are sent not to preach sociology, but salvation. Not economics, but evangelism. Not reform, but redemption. Not culture, but conversion. Not progress, but pardon. Not the new order, but the new birth. Not revolution, but regeneration. Not renovation, but resurrection. Not a new organization, but a new creation. Not democracy, but the gospel. Not civilization, but Christ. We are ambassadors, not just diplomats. We are witnesses of the power of Jesus' resurrection. And if you've put your faith in him, you are called to be his witness. And you might say, well, how do I do that? That just feels overwhelming. And I think if Jesus sat at a table with you in that moment and he said, hey, your job now is to go and bear witness to the truth of my resurrection, you'd say, Jesus, I don't even know where to begin. I wonder if for a moment he would just say, why don't you just start where I started? How about at a meal? Across a table? with some family and friends? Why not invite people to eat with you, to engage you in relationship? And then why not just share about what he's done in your life? You don't have to have all the right words or be perfect. 
You just give a testimony that says, yeah, Jesus saved me. And I've experienced his power in my life. You see, what I love about this moment is that the proclamation of the resurrection at a meal that Jesus gives with his disciples shows us that the everyday stuff of life is the context for which the resurrection is to be proclaimed. The resurrection is not just to be proclaimed on a, in a pulpit on a Sunday morning in a church. The resurrection is to be proclaimed by all of God's people everywhere to everyone. It's to be proclaimed at your work. It's to be proclaimed in your lives. It's proclaimed in, your sh- in the homes that you have, in the coffee shops that you visit. It's proclaimed sometimes when you just sit across a meal from someone and you tell them your story of how Jesus changed you. All of life in Jesus is brought into new creation power. And that means every moment has the power to bear witness to the reality of his resurrection. And that's why Jesus says you're going to be clothed with power from on high. You're going to have the Holy Spirit with you so you can bear witness to his resurrection wherever you go. And so I imagine if we had this meal with Jesus and he He told us and reminded us that his resurrection is true and he taught us the truth of what it means for salvation from God's word. And he said, hey, you're now gonna be witnesses. I still imagine there would be one crucial moment that he would lead us to in that moment. And he would simply ask you, will you follow me? I mean, it's the question he asked those first disciples. This is true. Will you trust in me and will you follow me? You see, if Jesus is really alive, if he's actually risen from the dead, that means he's actually the king. And that means his work can actually save. And that means that the resurrection is a call for everyone to trust and follow Jesus. And that's what I want you to hear today. If you don't know Jesus, if you never trusted him, be reminded the living Jesus calls you to repent, believe, and live for him. That's what the truth of the resurrection means. It means it changes your life. It's not a message to simply be acknowledged. It's not a truth to just go and tip your hat to. It's a claim on the very fabric of reality and a claim on your life. And to understand the resurrection is to trust in Jesus and apply it. See, I love Sundays and I love Easter Sunday. The room's full There's energy, there's excitement. But what I always get afraid of every Easter is that we'll give an applause to the resurrection, but we won't trust it enough to stake our lives on it. There's a great story about the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British preacher, and he was preaching at a church one day, and He had a certain charisma to him. And the story goes that he got up in the pulpit and he began his sermon by saying, this is one of the most important scriptures that we could look at today. And a guy in the back of the gallery yelled out, amen. And the good doctor looked at him for a second, but then continued on. We could spend our whole time in the epoch of our country, which we're in today, considering the truths of this incredible passage. And again, the guy yelled out from the back, amen. The doctor just kept going as a good preacher does. And yet again, the man interrupted, yelled out, amen, which I'm all for. You can say amen as much as you want. But the story goes that the doctor stopped, looked at the man, faced him and said, my friend, the gospel is to be applied, not simply applauded. 
the truth of the resurrection. Oh, the story goes on to say the man then responded, amen, and then shut up after that. And I share that story only to say that the reality of the resurrection and the good news proclaim, it proclaims demands a response. It calls for an application, not just an applause. It calls for more than a simple acknowledgement that says, yeah, that's a nice idea. It calls for us to turn from our sin, trust in Christ, and to experience his salvation. The claim of the resurrection, while it can be rejected, it cannot be ignored. And what the church does on Sundays like today and what we do every Sunday is we gather together to bear witness to its truth. We stand together to say 2,000 years ago, we believe that Jesus, our crucified king, offered as a sacrifice for sin, walked out of the tomb alive. And because of that, he defeated sin. He conquered death and he destroyed the power of the enemy over us. And he declared that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be restored in our relationship with God, that we could have hope of eternal life and one day brought to be, to in, to be with God in his new creation forever. That's the truth of the gospel and the truth of what the resurrection means. And then the call is to respond by putting your faith in Christ and experiencing the salvation that he offers. And that's what I want to give you the opportunity to do today. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to respond to the truth of his resurrection by trusting in him and experiencing the salvation that he offers. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.